I think when I started out interviewing people for Poetry Says, I thought that I had to be an expert or to at least know enough that I could fake being an expert. I'm very happy to say that I think I've let go of that idea. And I say that because today's guest, Cassandra Atherton, literally wrote the book on the subject we are talking about. Alongside her collaborator, Paul Hetherington, she has just recently put out a book through Princeton University Press called Prose Poetry and Introduction. And in 2020, Cassandra and Paul also put out the definitive anthology of Australian prose poetry. So there's very little that Cassandra doesn't know about prose poetry. I think that's really fair to say. I come to this type of poetry as a bit of a skeptic and with some pretty basic questions. And Cassandra was generous enough to hear those questions and to answer them and to basically go back to the beginning with me. We also talk about a bunch of other things in this chat as well. We talk about the reading series that she's been running in collaboration with a couple of poets in the US. And we talk about one of her other interests, which is Hibakusha poetry or poetry of the survivors of the atomic bomb. That's another area where my skepticism meets Cassandra's enthusiasm. She really believes that poetry can change lives, can lobby for important things. I'm still coming around to that point of view. And again, I really appreciated her patience in, in unpacking that idea with me. Apart from the fact that Cassandra is so knowledgeable on these topics, one of the other reasons that I really was nervous to do this interview is that Cassandra is also a very, very experienced interviewer. And if you listen all the way to the end, you will hear her talk about what it was like to interview some of the extremely famous and prolific public intellectuals that she's had the chance to speak to. Those interviews are collected in a book called In So Many Words, and they include conversations with people like Harold Bloom, Dana Joya, Noam Chomsky. It's a really impressive list, and it made me nervous to speak with her. I think rather than start out by defining prose poetry, the simplest way to go into this conversation would be to share a prose poem with you. And I was looking through the anthology here, and there are so many beautiful examples that I could share, but I came across a couple of examples from Melbourne poet Geordie Alberston. I found out on Sunday that Geordie had passed away earlier this month. Uh, it was a real, real shock. I think it came as a shock to everyone. I only met Geordie a couple of times. I was lucky enough to be able to sit down and interview her with another poet for a totally different project and she was very very generous with her time and her knowledge. I was in my monthly poetry group when I found out and everybody had something to say about how Geordie had helped them, how she had supported them and just what a generous presence she'd been in their lives as poets. So I want to share this prose poem by Geordie. It's called Anon. That's all. A luscious day today. Nothing like the smell of yesterday's letter and your beautiful hair to boot to report. A few dreams of something. A luscious day today. Before doomful dawn and that same sense of glooming, you know I am knowing. 
few dreams of something, but just as smiles before doomful dawn and that same sense of glooming, you know I am knowing, as he slaps my back with the brightest, most bell-spoken morning of words, but just as smiles the unreally white sky, as he slaps my back with the brightest, most bell-spoken morning of words, it opens and mashes and bears him away and everything with it and all the world. The unreally white sky, lying there broken. It opens and mashes and bears him away and everything with it and all the world. Not like the smell of yesterday's letter and your beautiful hair to boot to report. Lying there broken. That's all. I mean, I'm talking to someone who's interviewed Noam Chomsky and Harold Bloom, so I'll just I'll assume that you know what's up. Sick. <laughs> yeah, no, I really um, feel sheepish because we've just been in so many of the same rooms so many yeah. times and every time I've been like, oh, and it's just like, just gone around a bookshelf or something. No way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I just feel so... At sea, still, still, you know, 10 years into living here. Yeah. Um, I've walked into launches and not known anyone and spent a lot of time in the toilets until, you know, <laughs> the launch starts so you don't look like one of those people standing against the wall with no friends and no one coming up to you. And it's like, I'll just take yeah, myself yeah. out of this room. I'll just, you know, have a little toilet stop and come back and yeah. hope it's better. So yeah. I, was, I was talking to a, a friend who does theatre stuff and they said that they do blockies. They just walk around That's the clock until idea. three minutes before start time. But the thing is, with theatre, you know when it's going to start. Yeah. With poetry, you're not always sure. No. Yeah. So I'm having this conversation with myself right now because tonight over on Sydney Road, it's catastrophes. I really want to be there. Like so much of me wants to be there and so much of me is just afraid. Yeah. And I don't know what on earth I could possibly have to be afraid of. (laughs) Huh? I think that's what makes it so much more difficult that you can't actually identify it. I mean, I, yeah. I think the pandemic has made it a lot worse. I was talking to Lisa Gorton the other day, actually, and we were both talking about, you know, feeling a little bit of panic going into situations, not not yeah. because we're fearful of, you know, catching the virus, but just more we're out of practice and it's hard and yeah. I'm not prepared for it like I used to be. Maybe it's practice. Maybe you just have to go to loads of them until yeah. you start feeling comfortable and that you're in some kind of repetitious you know statement that you keep making that works for you I don't know yeah I think that I think practice is it like I remember feeling pretty good towards the end of 2019 because you know by that stage yeah. I'd been doing stuff on stage for a couple of years yeah, and so you've done I was amazing things yeah I was really comfortable just walking into a room and just assuming the best of everybody yeah. and assuming that they you know of course like no, no one's thinking about me this is the thing but yeah now it's like melbourne australia most awkward city in the world <laughs> we've lost our social skills i'm sure unless we're on zoom it becomes oh, confronting we've gotten pretty good at performing to our laptop camera yeah um yeah so well tell me a little bit about lip balm then because you've done that already today i have it's this only, morning yeah 
So it starts at nine o'clock. We have a little meeting. The Jonathan Penton and Mark Vincenzo, the other two, they founded Lip Balm uh, with Larissa Schmilo, but Larissa wasn't able to continue hosting it. So I got asked to co-host with them. And it's great when it's daylight saving because I can get up at eight o'clock. And then when we move into daylight saving and they do as well, it sort of ends up being sort of six o'clock. But it's been fantastic because I've learnt about what's happening in the poetry scene in kind of contemporary American settings. Um, this is set, well, Mark is in Massachusetts and uh, Jonathan is in New Orleans. So you get really oh, wow. interesting discussions happening about, even before we actually have the poetry readings, there are, you know, lots of discussions about, oh, where are you? What time is it? What have you done today? Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And you actually learn quite a lot from that. And they bring their friends and people they know and then that kind of starts to snowball and you end up with people emailing you and asking if they can feature on Lip Balm at some point or if they've got a book coming out. We've got um, a Marilyn Monroe show coming up. There's a Marilyn Monroe anthology, which uh, I think it's called I Want to Be Loved by You, which has been edited by a couple of amazing women in the poetry scene in America. And so you're going to do that near Marilyn's birthday, which I think is early June. So those sorts of things just seem to come from knowing people, chatting to people and the word spreading. And that's the nice thing about it. It's sort yeah. of organic like that. That's great. God, it must be, yeah, just so good to have that, that entry point, like yeah. even to such a, such specific scenes as well. Like yeah. not just New York or LA, but yeah. I mean, what's, what's going on in New Orleans? Like, well, we? <laughs> um, Jonathan just, well, they're coming up for Mardi Gras and Jonathan was oh. involved in all kinds of um, parades. And I mean, I love living vicariously through him and yeah. uh, I love New Orleans. I've only been once, but I went for quite a long time and I really loved it. So it's like going back when I speak to him about, he always says, oh, you just did all the touristy things. And I'm like, all right. I went around and looked at every house that Tennessee Williams ever lived in and that kind of <laughs> stuff, I admit it. Um, and I, I drank all the you know, cliche cocktails like hurricanes and all the rest of it. But I said, no, I feel like I was there long enough to, for it to kind of seep into me a bit and to do more of the local things. So, yeah. It sounds like the kind of place too where you can do the touristy things and you still have gotten a pretty good sense of yeah. what it's about. Exactly. I'm assuming. I don't know. Um, and you were part of the the poetry festival this year. It got cancelled. Yeah. Okay. So um, because of the pandemic, the we were supposed to go and do readings there. In it was actually in 2019. Like it was the flight that got cancelled at the last minute. Um, so I thought that we were going to go, and then it was rescheduled for 2020. It ended up being online. So okay. yeah, I did yeah. an online. Um, ekphrastic workshop as well as um, Lit Balm also hosted some of the readings so I was involved with the readings as well and they're doing it live this year outdoors I hear and I would have liked to go it doesn't quite meet up with a lot of the other things I have to do this year so mm -hmm. I'm determined to go next year so hopefully it'll be almost entirely back to normal next year. Yeah that would be amazing. Mm. What what does the rest of your year look like at this point? I am a person who loves traveling. I love meeting people. I love talking to people about, you know, their interests, especially if they're, you know, related to the arts. And I've got a lot of friends traveling at the moment who are all saying, come and meet me. Like, let's, I've got a, Kristen Sanders is a lovely, um, brilliant poet. And, you know, she's in Paris for a year and I've got a lot of friends who are traveling. So yeah, I'm hoping to go to uh, London and Rome and perhaps Venice in the middle of the year and then maybe Paris a little bit later on to meet up with people. It's really wonderful. You end up meeting so many people that 
you end up doing a reading at a bookshop or something like that just through the generosity of people's kind of spirit and their enthusiasm like oh you've got to come and do this i'm doing this can you read or can you do that or can you whatever and i'm always willing just to throw my arms out and do whatever they want me to that i mean that sounds amazing that sounds like a very exciting uh 2022 (laughs) i'm excited for you yeah so researching to talk with you i felt like i had to wrestle a bit with my inner prose poetry skeptic (laughs) fair enough there are plenty (laughs) of them out there and I feel like that that skepticism comes from the fact that I really had no proper understanding of the form I tried to write one prose poem once (laughs) and found it really difficult and um, I think I agree with a quote that you included in an article that you wrote with Paul Hetherington that was published in Axon a little while ago where Elliot says, whatever one writes must be definitely and by inner necessity either one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I was coming from. I was like, well, surely it's just prose or surely it's just poetry, you know. Mm-hmm. But in um, coming into contact with this anthology that you and Paul have put together, the Anthology of Australian Prose Poetry, which mm-hmm. came out in 2020, I feel like I'm my eyes have been completely open. <laughs> That's I, st- I still don't feel as if I have any um, capacity to write a prose poem, but what's fascinating about looking through this anthology is that so many people have. Mm-hmm. It's surprised. not as if, yeah, it's not as if this is a form that is like neglected. Yeah, neglected <laughs> or exclusive or, you know, ev- everyone's kind of tried their hand at it. I was surprised doing the research for it. So we spent a long time researching because we wanted to get the origins or some of the more um, obvious examples of prose poetry from the kind of 1970s really kind of nailed down. And and we'd asked around and people had given us some examples, but we really just ended up having to do research. And I have to tell you, research on the prose poetry, on the prose poem when you're looking for prose poems and anthologies is so easy because you can flip through them very fast. Usually, if I, you know, if you were looking for a poem on something, you know, specifically, that would be a lot harder. So I felt like we were cheating, but it was a great way to cheat because you'd find (laughs) them really fast in, in books. And of course, there's others you had to look out for that may not look like that fully justified box on the page but there's something Mm. about the long lines and the way that they're written that is you know a visual cue that you're reading probably a prose poem or something like it um and then we were really surprised that you know vincent buckley and just a range of of poets who i knew their lineated poetry really intimately but had no idea at some point they published prose poems and really good ones Mm. you know really good ones i knew about andrew taylor and i knew how important he was to the form and I loved the way that he explored the quotidian as well, which I think is really important in the idea of the prose poem because it uses sentences. So it's that level of kind of ordinary and playing with extraordinary, but but on its most basic kind of unit of the sentence is is kind of an ordinary thing. And I love when that's combined with you know some of some of the ideas of sitting at a desk or looking out the window or taking the rubbish out or any of those kinds of things. And then the mm-hmm. Americans, of course use that idea of the surreal to really shake things up so you've got them rubbing up against one another sort of ordinary looking box of prose where you know aliens are landing you know Mm. in people's breakfasts or the dishes are getting up and running away um anything that sort of really surprises i guess yeah Mm -hmm. in everything i've read researching to talk to you i've Mm -hmm. noticed that you've defined prose poetry as Mm -hmm. part of it. And in the introduction to this anthology, you do the same thing. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't feel like it's that complicated <laughs> and so why do you think there is so much misunderstanding like why the resistance among poets you know I've said yeah. that I was a skeptic coming to it why do you think that is I mean why would I possibly need to be a skeptic about like I'm not a skeptic about science. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, first of all, it's usually the first question I'm asked um, anywhere I go from launches to just milling around with people at, at events. It's like, what's a prose poem? Exactly what it is. At, lay out the characteristics for yeah, me. Like, yeah. I really want to know. Um, and I think some of that comes from, to be perfectly honest, a kind of elitism that surrounds lineated poetry. It's like, that's real poetry. It's elevated. There's a lot of white space around it where the words, you know, end at the right margin, whether it's halfway across or a quarter of that, that's really meaningful and important. This is poetry. How can a bunch of sentences on a page that run and wrap at the margin and keep going, how can that be a poem? Um, and we've, we've seen that too, like prose poetry doesn't often win poetry awards. And it's something I think about the way it looks mm. um, more than how it deals with poetic themes or, or how it constructs imagery or its use of gaps and spaces. It's sort of, and you know, it's really difficult. One of the things I was asked to do recently um, was to write five pages or there were a group of us who were asked to write five pages of poems. And that's incredibly difficult with prose poetry because yeah. it's so tight and compact and it's all because the sentences run and wrap at the margin as, as they should, you know, that, that's a lot of writing compared to some of the other people in the group who, you know, write beautiful lineated poetry, but there might be three or four words on some lines and so it tracks differently in mm. the white space. Um, and, and that's why, that's the joy of reading a prose poem versus a lineated poem is knowing the difference in their kind of use of space. But yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of writing if you're going to write a number of prose poems across a number of pages. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like, yeah, that there's there's more work there. But I feel as if part of my skepticism mm. is coming from this idea, which I got from somewhere, that prose poetry is getting away with something. <laughs> like it's easier to do. It's a trickster. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a common misconception about that too. I think the worst one I always hear is, "Oh, I can." I can make a prose poem into a lineated poem by just inserting some returns at various points and mm. then it changes its shape and it doesn't run to the margin and all of a sudden you've got a lineated poem or vice versa. Mm. You know, you've got a lineated poem, you're going to collapse um, the spaces. A few people, um, you know, had actually published in a really interesting way poems that were lineated at some point and then republished his prose poems later on. I never think they're that convincing. I always think that they are one thing or another as they should be. Mm. Um, Ginsberg did it with one of his poems too, which is really interesting. And it's, it's very obvious that one works and one's and the prose poem works a lot better than the lineated one. It's sort of, there's not enough kind of cramped condensed kind of moments. It's sort of spreading out something that doesn't have, um, the juxtapositions that it has in a really different way when you've got sentences on top of sentences on top of sentences, those mm. sorts of things. Yeah, you've talked um, in a few different places about the, the sense of breathlessness yeah, that comes. Yeah, the gallop, yeah. You I would lose so much if you just like dropped a bunch of line breaks in there. Yeah, it would, it, exactly with what you're saying about breathlessness, it just wouldn't work because mm. the breathing is sort of different. I think too, you know, that because you've got this kind of gallop, you've also got these wonderful moments in prose poetry where people slow things down with their punctuation or something like mm. that. Um, Mariko Nagai has written these amazing prose poems about radiation in Japan. 
and um, a book called Irradiated Cities, she uses the colon in the most interesting way where everything is punctuated with a colon, so there's nothing else. And it's sort of all these broken phrases and sentences um, in her prose poems that just seem to be forever connected because this colon is saying, you know, they're two parts of the same thing or mm. that sort of balancing act that just continues for the whole book. It's fascinating. Mm. Um, and that changes your breath as well because everything seems to be connected. So you're not quite sure where to stop and you want to stop at a colon, but then you're not sure yeah. and it becomes this really um, uncanny almost experience, which is exactly what she wants. You know. I've just had a realisation that like one of my favourite poems of the last five years is a prose poem. <laughs> well, there you go. It's, it's, uh, I think it's called For All the Dogs Who Barked at Me on the Sidewalks of Connecticut. It's by um, Hanif Abdurraqib and it's got, it's not colons, it's um, slashes. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting too because people often say to me, oh, doesn't that just mean it's a lineated poem and that's where the lineations occur? And I'm like, no. Like, they, <laughs> no, the poet doesn't mean that they would have done it like that. Well, they would have done it that way, yeah. But I think about the fact that there's something more interesting going on there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel a little bit like I'm just asking you the same questions that you've answered for years and years, and I feel bad about that. No, I love talking about prose poetry. (laughs) I I loved prose poetry before I even knew what prose poetry was. You know, I was the person writing little sentences and fragments and things on the back of shopper dockets and those and not really understanding where I fit in the prose poetry or the poetry world or anything like that so mm. um it was a joy to sort of find my people and yeah think of them yeah yeah I guess I just say that because I feel like I wonder if it's tiring to just constantly having to go back to step zero with people and be like okay so you know how poetry <laughs> is a thing <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's no, it's not because I think the more people who know about it and will choose to write it or try to write it, mm. you know, and, and maybe put some examples in, you know, their next collection or submit one for, you know, possible publication somewhere, that's really exciting to me. I feel like I'm converting people one at a time almost, yeah. you know. Um, and it doesn't mean that's all they want to write, although I do get really excited by books that are just entirely prose poems. There's mm. not there's not that many. You would think that there were more and certainly more and more people are doing it, but there aren't there usually are a handful of prose poems now in collections, which is great. You know, back in the 70s, there weren't a lot. There might be one. Mm. And many of the poems that we picked for the anthology of Australian prose poetry in the early days, there were sort of only one or two examples. There wasn't um, as many as you would find in a kind of contemporary collection. Yeah. I was amazed and excited to realise that Luke Davies' interview on Psalms yeah. is a, is a prose, yeah. like it's a long-form prose poem. Yeah, because I think everyone's looking for ways to extend the prose. So, so there's a huge debate, obviously, about how long is a prose poem, which is a little bit like how long is a piece of string. However, most people do <laughs> kind of agree that visually things change once you have to turn a page. So yeah, okay. most people would like the prose poem to sort of fit on, on a sort of a standard page. Um, some go a little longer and in this book there are examples of ones that go longer than Mm. a page Mm. generally when they go longer than a page they start coming up um, against the possibility that they're poetic prose especially if they're very very long it's it's contentious because it means that John Ashbery's you know prose poems actually poetic prose because they go for pages and pages and for me that's what they read like they read like you know poetic prose not prose poetry Um, 
So, th- but there's lots of you know punch-ons in the prose poetry <laughs> definition world. Um, so, I love that. Anyway. That's something I've been talking about the narcissism of minor differences. Like, wow. Yeah. No, it gets right down to that level of exactly how many words is it? Two hundred and fifty words? Is it two hundred eighty-five words? It's like, well, do you mind? Like, do I'm, you have I a, think a that thought the on compression that? is compromised if it goes over a page. Okay. I've written some over a page and they have a different feeling about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I generally. Yeah, believe that you're you're looking at um, you know no no more than one page, and most of them are a kind of a half a page fully justified mm-hmm. rectangle. Some people love leaving that right margin ragged rather than justifying it. Mine are all justified. When I first started, it was really weird. I um I really wanted to have perfect kind of boxes of um of poetry, so I would you know, rewrite sentences and get it into this perfect kind of shape that I was happy with and there'd be words under different words I wanted there. And mm. I learned really fast as a prose poet, you can't do that because then you submit it somewhere and the design and the margins are entirely different and yeah, your prose you poetry box it. doesn't mm. end up being like that anymore. So it was a really good lesson for me too because I'm fine with lineated poetry. It's so important which word, you know, ends on each line and which word begins the, the line after. In, in mm. prose poetry, you have to give that up. You, you don't have that capacity. I mean, you, yeah. you might, but I think it's part of the form to realise that you don't have that mm. um, power over how it will end up looking on the page, really. Yeah, yeah. Don't necessarily have control over every no. aspect of it. When we were chatting back and forth on email, you yeah. said that one of the things you've been thinking about recently is collaboration. Mm. And obviously you've had a long collaboration with Paul Hetherington. Yeah. I think I read that you've been working together since about 2014. Yep. Yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. Um, and you've collaborated with Jess Wilkinson as well. Yeah. Um, I came across this thing this morning actually in the Saturday paper on collaboration. There's a writer, a fiction writer called Robert Lukens, who was talking about the Jane Campion movie Bright Star. I love Bright Star. I used to use that in some of my lectures on oh, Pete's. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. But um, this fiction writer was talking about collaboration and he says, talking about that film, I used to consider writing as an entirely solo pursuit and I kept myself completely shut off. I was locking myself in the tower writing, but now I realise writing is as much a team sport as filmmaking. My new book is genuinely a collaboration with my publisher and editors, my agent, talking with readers and other writers. Art is so much stronger to me when it doesn't exist purely in the brain of one human. Is that does that resonate with you? In it terms does. Of, yeah. I started off being one of those people who said, "I hate collaboration. I never want to collaborate. Anybody I've ever collaborated with has let me down." From like primary school, trauma in primary school, where it's like you have to do a <laughs> group, group assignment, assignment, right? <laughs> and you're like, "I want a good grade for this," and no yeah. one's doing what they're supposed to be doing. I better just do it all, yeah. you know? And that would that would happen and. So I didn't really understand what group work was. I thought someone just took the lead and did the majority of it or you, you picked the person who was best at that particular topic. You know, if it was frogs, you know, and someone had, you know, an expert kind of frog pond or something in their back, they, they would be the person. But um, it was only actually probably when I matured a lot more and realised that um, it's, who, it's who you work with, it's who mm. you trust and who you're willing to kind of... Um, share your work with and know that they have your best interests in heart at heart and they want to make it a better piece, you know, by offering you feedback or advice. And, you know, that then moves often into 
well, we trust one another, why don't we write together? Mm. Um, and I, when I collaborate with people, I really like those kind of moments to be so collaborative that when you look back, you can't tell which part you wrote and which part somebody else wrote. Well, and that's the thing I can't get over. Yeah. There's these essays. It's, you know, Cassandra Atherton and Paul yeah. Hetherington. And I'm just thinking, well, but, but who wrote yeah. this sentence? <laughs> it's really, we get asked that a lot. And yeah. what we've actually decided to do um, to kind of push the boundaries a little bit more, actually writing collaborative prose poetry. Mm-hmm. So not prose poetry where someone writes one and someone writes another one and you put them together as perhaps a sequence or something like that. Actually writing a couple of lines and sending it to him and he'll write a couple of lines and then I might edit those lines and he might delete one of mine and it becomes this kind of Frankenstein's monster at the mm. end where nothing really was one person's contribution. It's you know so much a part of that whole editing process. I mean, editors, editing is incredible. If you look at um, Elliot, you know, and Pound, you know, the wasteland is entirely different. I mean, it's, it's second author really should, should be Pound. And obviously a lot of people believe that anyway, when you look at the enormous edits of about, cut about a third of the work out. So it's such an interesting question that you're saying, like at what point, who's the author of the work in the end? You know, if someone's given you this advice and it's paramount to, an understanding or reading of it and somebody else writes this or edits that you know is is it just yours anymore and i think there's something really nice thinking that it is this this bigger thing that a whole lot of people have you know helped you with or collaborated with you on to make it better than it could have been just on your own and actually probably was phil day who taught me that the first person i collaborated with was an artist who was looking for a poet and he said i want to get you to write some poetry and i want to draw some pictures and i'm Mm. like great let's do that it was really open it's always terrifying though, right? The first time you send something to someone, it's like, oh, I'm going to collaborate this person. Yes. They want this, like, whether it's an academic article, whether it's a prose poem where you're like, right, I've written a thousand words. I don't know. I've been over it a thousand times. I'm worried. They're not going to think it's good enough or whatever. But yeah. once you find your people, you don't care. We write notes to one another. Like, I don't know. I can't fix this sentence. Fix this. Or, <laughs> fix it. You know, sort you have something in here about this or whatever. Um, and it's, it's just a nice kind of loose way of working where you feel like you're getting... You know, the, we, I feel like I collaborate with people who do things uh, really well that are different from the things I do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we bring those kind of skills that on our own we wouldn't have. So I like that. How is it different collaborating with Paul mm-hmm. versus collaborating with Jess? Um, Jess and I work on a lot of projects about – because we, we both – love the idea that poetry can do things that Mm. poetry can change people's lives really that poetry can lobby for important things that poetry can help with well-being we've done a number of projects like the most recent one that we did was on older australians and it's probably my favorite project it it broke my heart in lots of ways you know i wanted to visit all these older Australians that I interviewed and ended up writing kind of poetic biographies about. I just wanted them to be part of my lives because so many of them were lonely or they were just looking for someone to listen to their stories or um, they were having a tough time or whatever. And, you know, I've got my own grandparents that, you know, I'm responsible for too. So it becomes just not having the time but wanting to kind of support these people who you feel have had you know, a real effect on the way I think about poetry and what it can do. Mm. Um, and their families writing these beautiful letters to Jess and I saying, 
I can't believe my mom or my dad's been kind of memorialized in this way in a book. You know, she's so proud of the book or he's taken the book to the RSL and shown all of his friends. Uh And um, we, you know, some of the interviews, the families asked, you know, for copies of them and they said, I've never heard my mom talk about how she met my dad like that before or whatever. So um, Jess and I sort of maybe do that, the sort of collaborations that come from the heart, maybe. Um, we did an ekphrastic uh, prose poetry, uh, a book based on some of the writings at Heidi, which, you know, was, was really fantastic. Yeah, and yeah, I went to one of those readings. It yeah. was fantastic, yeah. So that was, mm. that was fun. So, yeah, and at the moment we're looking at um, joining with some of the councils. We've got an uh, opportunity with Frankston Council coming up where we're talking to women over 50 who identify as lonely. So that's one of their target groups that they feel are kind of at risk. And so applying this kind of a little bit of interviewing and we've got um, Jennifer Harrison doing a workshop, you know, with them and um, working with them on their poems and publishing their poems and having an artist from Frankston sketching, you know, some things and, and having, you know, creating a book. It's just good for the soul, you know, it's just, um, I love the way that Jess thinks about who would benefit from poetry and I love talking to her about it and then you know we'll come up with different ideas of how to approach it and what we want to do and those sorts of things so that's sort of what I do with Jessica with Paul it's been really interesting he approached me at a conference I think as you said in about 2014 because I was reading prose poetry and talking about prose poetry and he said how much has been written on prose poetry I'm like oh not very much there's a handful of books and he's like he said to me later on he's like I walked away thinking I'm sure there's loads of stuff on prose poetry. Like it's a pretty, pretty well-defined kind of form throughout the world. Like there must be. And then he, you know, started looking around and said, yeah, you're right. So he wrote to me and said, yeah, you're right. There's not that much. Do you want to write an article? Mm-hmm. So I feel like our collaboration is really centered on prose poetry and, um, and more kind of, uh, or has been up until now and more of the scholarly kind of writing articles together. Um, you know, writing a, I mean, it was, I tell you what, it was pretty exhausting. It was blood, sweat and tears writing the prose poetry and in introduction for Princeton. And it, you know, it yeah, was, I wondered about that. It was a bit of a baptism of fire doing that length. Like it was 120,000 words, I think. And it was pretty intense wow. kind of three years. You're just living in this bubble of prose poetry and these emails. I think a couple of times we met up at libraries and things like that because we couldn't do what we needed to do over the telephone mm. or um, over email. But um yeah, so they're, they're different, but in many ways they kind of result in the same thing. So much richer experience than, you know, going off on your own and, and doing something that you love, but that you've got no other voice or no other, you know, way of seeing things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, greater than, than what either of you could do alone, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I want to come back to this this idea of, poetry can change things can mm-hmm. can change people's lives and that's another sentiment that I guess I have taken a position that I sort of lazily thought was fashionable which <laughs> is oh poetry does nothing you know poetry yeah. um is 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 irrelevant and um has no effect on anything so uh, I don't know, for some reason that appealed to me. Um, it feels like an excuse, but <laughs> yeah. I, I really want to quote um, Janine Leon yeah. um, talking about the Memory Book Project, the project mm-hmm. that she was involved with. Yeah, yeah on older Australians. So 
Janine says, in an age when newspapers and magazines are all too prepared to write, black writing is young and edgy. This project offers the opportunity to redefine what really is edgy and deep and to challenge current shallow perceptions of activism beyond the quick fix and cheap talk of social media through a series of poetic biographies and the elderly and aging within our communities. And first of all, like, Janine is just a, a, a treasure for all of us oh, in the way that she doesn't pull punches and just says exactly oh, how it is. That's what you want her to be though, right? It wouldn't, she, you know, it wouldn't be half as effective if, if um, she wasn't so clear yeah. too about what um, what's happening in poetry, what should happen in poetry, what, you know, what her interest is in the area, absolutely. Yeah, and I guess when I read that, I thought, what on earth is it that I want poetry to do beyond change an individual's perspective? Mm -hmm. Surely that's enough. <laughs> like, well, what, what if it has potential to do a lot more than that? That's well, thing, okay, yeah. yeah. How, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think that we turn to poetry at some of the most difficult times of our lives, both individually and kind of collectively. Um, when I was much younger, I think the first thing that I realised was 9-11 when I went to, um, to New York. And there was poetry everywhere, like people had written poems and stuck them up, you know, all over the kind of site, all over Ground Zero. And I realized how that was um, something that people reached for in their worst moments. And then you think about the fact that people often read poems at funerals and weddings. And, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when a lot of people say, I don't understand poetry or I don't like it. But there's something that keep we keep coming back to in these moments. Mm. And I think it's partly because poetry does the best job of trying to... Um, you know, or, or dealing with the ineffable, you know, what, what you, it tries to say what you can't say. It gets closest to saying sort of what you can't say in words. Um, but from a personal point of view, you know, I, I certainly think working a lot on issues of um, the atomic bomb and Hiroshima and those sorts of things, I think we can lobby for change in poetry. I think social media is really interesting because poems now are, you know, reaching huge audiences. Um, and, you know, if poetry because it looks small um, in many ways and mm. it can fit you know on a on a page or a screen can really pack a punch like it can people read it you know rather than thinking oh, I've got to read a 10 page article or I've got to do those sorts of things and then if it goes viral or it picks up or people start talking about it you know you've got a real discussion happening especially about you know um, obviously the disturbing situation of you know, nuclear warfare, which seems to be back on the table again, you know, like it's, it's never, um, it's never very far. I think, you know, we, we talk about Hiroshima being a long time ago and, and trying to remember and learn from what happened there. And then not so long ago, I remember talking about it because Korea, you know, North Korea was, you know, threatening and had sort of done some testing of nuclear warfare. And now again, you know, with, um, with, with even what's happening now and Chernobyl being sort of taken over by the Russians as well, there's always, there's still a question, you know, of what, of what's going to happen. Mm. Every time there's a war now, there's a question that we actually might just be obliterated entirely, um, you know, by nuclear warfare. It's kind of terrifying. Um, and so I think that poetry tries to capture that terror that that sort of um the nucleus of lime you know has been has been discussed as a as a way of not totally being able to grapple with the idea that it may be the end of all you know hum, human beings or the end of the world as we know it so um it, it comes from the, the clever part that i love so much about the nucleus sublime is that there's a a farm 
kind of insurance policy that a lot of this comes from and it says in the policy um, it doesn't uh, insure against like the end of the world because how can it? And it sort of gets bound off in these ideas of expression. Like how can you say that we can't cover something when there's no world for it to be covered in, you know, insurance-wise as well. So it's really interesting just grappling for words to describe what, what all of that means. It's really amazing. This is the second time this year on this podcast that the Nuclear Sublime has come up. Hey. I don't quite know how I <laughs> we ended up there twice already. It's only <laughs> February. Um, yeah, I really wanted to ask you about the Hibaksha poets as well mm. because that was another moment where this idea that I have about you know, poetry doesn't have any power, really. I felt like reading some of those poems, my mind was, I don't know, I guess the arrogance of that was really challenged for me because, um, yeah, I was just lazily accepting this idea that, that poetry can't achieve anything. And then I read um, Kurihara Sadako's Let Us yeah. Be Midwives. Amazing. I don't. I didn't prepare you for this at all. But would you like to read that? Yeah, sure. Okay. If you've got a copy of it. Um, and Richard Muneer is a wonderful translator, so I think he's made it really um, incredibly moving in his choice of, of translation. Let us be midwives: an untold story of the atomic bombing, by Sadako Kurihara. Night in the basement of a concrete structure now in ruins. Victims of the atomic bomb jammed the room. It was dark, not even a single candle. The smell of fresh blood, the stench of death, the closeness of sweaty people, the moans. From out of all that, lo and behold, a voice, the baby's coming. In that hellish basement, at that very moment, a young woman had gone into labour. In the dark, without a single match, what to do? People forgot their own pains, worried about her, and then... I'm a midwife, I'll help with the birth. The speaker, seriously injured herself, had been moaning only moments before. And so new life was born in the dark of that pit of hell. And so the midwife died before dawn, still bathed in blood. Let us be midwives, let us be midwives, even if we lay down our lives to do so. It's amazing kind of little vignette of this one moment in all of this chaos and the whole kind of a Hiroshima burning and, you know, this life in this hellish pit of a basement just becomes the hope, you know, that sort of like the, there's red canna lilies that first bloomed um, in Hiroshima. They said nothing would grow for like 70 years and then up came these calla lilies and they were this incredible sign of hope that, you know, Hiroshima wasn't lost and, um, and things would grow and return one once again and it reminds me too of um that poem and the idea of hope in the in the baby born in the basement yeah i'm glad you spoke for a little while afterwards because i'm just taking a minute to recover it's a, it's a beautiful piece because it's so stripped back you know there's no it's so direct yeah, yeah. just oh. god all right continue with the interview alice there's no time for crying is that why the, the red flower? No, no I just okay. like hibiscuses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did want to ask you about that as well. I, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about um, femininity. Yeah. Because it comes up quite a bit in your work. Your work uh, yeah. acknowledges the existence of sex and romance. Um, I'm thinking particularly of 
the poem of yours, Pilot, mm -hmm. but also Bonds, which you, you perform relatively often. Yeah. I was also really excited to see that you'd written with Paul about um, Irigaray. Yeah. But I don't, I have studied Irigaray and I still don't understand her work well enough to ask you properly about <laughs> <That's> it. <right. laughs> but I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too about, um, there was, uh, Jeff Page was talking about your work and he, he, described it as seriously playful which I yeah. thought was a pretty pretty good description so you you seem to personally embrace femininity really comfortably I just wondered if you ever get pushback from people I do I remember um I remember an academic asking me at Melbourne Uni did I wear pink to be ironic <laughs> and I said no you just like it I just like it is that okay <laughs> is that all right um yeah I think lot of power in the private space and in and in identity and I think um, there's been so much written about you know women's oppression and domestic prisons and those sorts of things but I think there's also um, in many ways women have been shamed by enjoying those things I like cooking I, you should see people's faces when you tell them that you know people are like no oh my goodness you're an academic you know, yeah you know why don't you just you know not cook and make your husband do it I'm like well yeah he cooks sometimes too but it's just something that I really enjoy doing and uh -huh. um I like to capture that kind of private space of women I think there's a lot of power in sex you know I think that um I think that relationships and the private space are kind of fascinating. I think it, it, for me, a lot of it connects, I guess, with some of my early readings of Virginia Woolf in a room of one's own. You mm -hmm. know, what if the room of one's own is your bedroom or your boudoir? You know, <laughs> does it have to be a, a little writing desk? You know, somewhere. What what if what if those sorts of thoughts and ideas and poetry happen sort of somewhere else in a more kind of sexualized space? Mm. Um, yeah, and I enjoy. I guess, you know, there's a lot of different strands of post-feminism, but, you know, I enjoy the idea that, you know, women, if they find it empowering to wear pink or high heels or lots of makeup or spend hours curling their hair, that that's, you know, for themselves, not for the idea that they're going to, you know, be attractive to men or to women or to whatever. It's more about um, feeling satisfied and powerful yourself mm. in how you, how you feel good about yourself. Yeah, it's taken me so long to come around to that. But actually, Jess's work has, mm. has helped me in that as well because you know, I remember going to rabbit launches at Collected Works and things and and Jess would be maybe wearing a dress, like a pink yeah. silk dress with rabbits on it or something yeah. like that. And the way that the rabbit looks, one of the reasons it's such a... I mean, first of all, it is just like a distillation of everything that's great happening in Australian <laughs> poetry like that that helps a lot yeah yeah it's also just a beautiful aesthetic object yeah shamelessly so yeah. like unapologetically so yeah. so I, th I think I finally get it but you know being a an 80s kid <laughs> kind of growing up I, I guess when I was an early teenager it was like the whole the riot girl thing was pretty yeah. big yeah and I think I I decided like it's very important not to be a girl yeah and that's and that's terrible in a way because it's because it's that's already buying that into that second sex sort yeah, of yeah. You know, thing. So it's mm. you know that idea that you know um, patriarchy has uh, clubbed us down to such a point that we don't want to identify with those things that make us you know wholly feminine or mm. um, or potentially put us in a weaker position because of those things. Yeah, I think everyone should just 
dress and be who they want to be. That's the thing I always <laughs> think. If you want to wear a pink tutu or you want to wear, you know, tracksuit pants, mm. great. Be whatever you feel makes you powerful and comfortable and and happy with yourself. That's the most important thing. Yeah, well, I feel excited um, when I... You know, when I like see teenagers now kind of wandering around, wandering up and down Brunswick Street or whatever, and they really are doing that. Like they are just like exactly, it, it appears to me anyway that nearing 40 that they're like doing doing exactly what they want to do. Um, I'm sure there's all kinds of like rules and stuff that they can't do because whatever, but um, it feels as if they're there's a lot more freedom and acceptance to be exactly um, where exactly wherever you want to be on the on the feminine masculine I scale. So. I, I feel like a little bit of like envy. Yeah. Around that. Up at that time. Yeah. 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 I think some things have got easier, but I think there. I was saying to my husband the other day actually um, that I grew up at a time where. It was quite fashionable to wear, you know, big sort of boho dresses and Mm. and oversized clothes and how I didn't feel the pressure that, you know, a lot of my friends' children and that talk about um, with the kind of sexualized teen, the kind of tight tight clothes and the way of, um, you know, having to have muscles and, you know, toned flesh and all this kind of stuff. And I said, oh, I, I don't know how I would have dealt with all of that. It's, it feels much harder in that capacity now to be a young person than, mm. um, than other challenges, I guess, we had when I was young. But Yeah, I guess there's rules yeah. at any point. Yeah, I'm definitely um, probably overstating the – well, I'm just assuming. I'm just making a huge assumption about the freedom that young people have. Well, you hope with what you see in the terms of the diversity of what people are wearing and, mm. you know, no one's, you know, well, potentially on the street, no one's giving them a problem about it, but I guess. Yeah, not. <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Please, uh, if you are under the age of 25, contact. Yeah. Poetry <laughs> says. Um, this kind of uh, leads me to... The first question I wanted to ask you when I, the first thing I wrote down when I was mm-hmm. writing my notes down was, can you please tell me about the course that you teach at Deakin called Classics and Trash? Yes, I do love Classics and Trash. Oh my so... God, what a name. <laughs> can I audit yeah, your course? Yeah, do it. Come Sweet. along, come along. It's loads Amazing. of fun, actually. Um, so it talks about the Western canon, but it also introduces ideas of what is a, an Eastern canon and what is potentially a, you know, an alternative canon, or should we not have one at all? But it talks about how a lot of things that are considered to be, you know, top of the canon, like even like Shakespeare or you know Jane Austen, talks about some of those texts and the way they were received at the time and how in, in their own time they weren't considered to be, you know, these incredibly important um texts that were just things that people consumed and loved and you know people threw tomatoes in shakespeare's performances from the audiences it was it was a very different thing when you say shakespeare now students often think it's you know incredibly serious and incredibly difficult and very rigorously intellectual and all of that but you know it was it was so much fun and it was performance and it was um, you know, same with same with Jane Austen. You know, it was kind of romance. It, yeah, it was social critique and it was biting and all of those things. But it was an enjoyable read. Mm. And so, talking about the reception of those texts when they first came out, 
um, and what's happened, you know, since then, and then looking at the new things that are out now and saying, um, maybe some of the things that we just enjoy that aren't necessarily considered to be intellectually rigorous, you know, what is it about a text that, what, what does it need to have to, to survive, I guess, for, you know, for it to be read in 50 years or a hundred years, you know? Amazing. What do you, yeah. what are some examples of the things, like the current things that you talk about? Oh, well, we, we try a whole lot of different things. Okay. To, um, we also have a kind of strand of cult text. So we talk about Breakfast at Tiffany's, for instance, mm-hmm. and say, well, while it probably doesn't have enough of the kind of qualities such as, you know, some of the theme, transcendent themes or the way that it's written, um, it's, you know, it's a pretty, pretty basic novella but a pretty enjoyable one. And I think in some ways it's the film that's made um, the Capote text as famous as it is. Um, so that will probably survive, but for different reasons than Shakespeare or, you know, Emily Bronte, um, who, who most people would say have, you know, a really exquisite way of writing and a way of being able to deal with issues that are still important today as they were kind of then. Mm. Um, so the new ones we tried out, we did do True Blood for a while because, um, it was almost (laughs) a reversal. So we looked at, um, the Charlene Harris book, which, um, is pretty, look, really enjoyable, but fairly poorly written, you know, a real... Uh, page turner and great for tension and all of those things but has some shocking lines in it like i think um uh suki says i've got very perky breasts at one point and i'm just like no you didn't write <laughs> I say that. that all the no. time yeah, yeah you know absolutely <laughs> just wake up in the morning i've got perky breasts yeah <laughs> so those sorts of things are real cringeworthy and and so you know we talked about that and then we talked about how most people think the book is always better than the film or the mm. book's always better and yeah right the hbo series and true blood was like one of those things though wasn't it where it was like oh my god tv just got really good yes it was like that sort of yeah. like moment where you had this sort of golden age of television returning i was like totally yeah that and true detective it was a good time true detective we've done true detective we've at the moment we're looking at bridgerton so classics and trash so looking at that what makes something trash why Mm -hmm. you know why is it sort of considered to be trash and is it just because it's enjoyable or you know what what is it um about these texts so we've done um yeah we do also have a look at some music um and like it, pop music? Yeah, like pop music. So, such, such as? Well, when I did it, I, because uh, I lectured in it a few years ago, but it's occasionally taken by different people when I'm um, not able to take it. So at the moment I'm working as a associate head of school, so it doesn't allow me as much time as I would like. But um, so I was looking at Eminem. So looking at those ideas of slant rhymes and comparing them a little bit to Emily Dickinson and that sort of idea. We looked at Rihanna songs. And now they're much cooler than I am. So the tutors and the lecturer, when we have a big meeting and talk about what texts and we want, if we want to change anything, um, you know, so so they do a range of much more exciting um, Megan the Stallion and all kinds of ah. you know, texts that the students really love, um, some okay. of the students really love. So yeah, um, but it's it's exciting to be at that level of discussion in tutorials, you know, yeah. where we're all talking about things that we like and things we don't, and will that survive and won't it? And I guess it's kind of fun to um, maybe try and predict some of the things they think might might be longer lasting. Harry Potter used to come up a lot, um, not as much now, but you know, I think cool. Harry, yeah, Harry Potter is going to survive in that same kind of maybe cult, you know, way um, rather than it surviving on its on its own merits. Far out. I just uh, really feel for the Potter fans. They've 
it's kind of cool to watch them just be like, okay, so we need to run this ourselves now. Yeah. Um, yep. So we'll just pretend like <laughs> this came from God. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, oh God, it's, to- it's endlessly fascinating to me that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not so much death of the author as, let's not talk about the author anymore. Um, it- yeah. I find um, I was teaching in secondary school when the Harry Potter books came out, um, but they weren't as popular when they first came out because they hadn't been sort of taken up and they were, ended up being kind of remarketed and new covers on them and everything. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading the first one and thinking it was, you know, good, but there are also a lot of other books that had similar themes and similar ideas and were probably better. And it mm. was a really interesting lesson about the power of marketing. You can't have something rubbish, but but what makes Harry Potter better than, I don't know, there was an Eva Ibbotson book about wizards and a, a rank, what makes it better? Well, you know, the marketing is a powerful, powerful machine. Yeah, yeah. And it was better before the movies because then people had to read the books. Yes. And I think I interviewed um, Dana Joyer a poet who ended up being um, in charge of the National Endowment for the Arts and that too. And he did this amazing program in Washington, D.C., where he believes that people read books if they feel like they're being left out and they want to join the conversation, which is Mm. often what happens with students too. One of the ways that they end up reading books, even if they are ones they don't want to read, is that you say all these kind of interesting things in the lectures, hopefully, and they think, oh, gosh, you know, I'll be like, oh, that scene where this happens in this (laughs) chapter. And they're like, oh, no, I've got to go home and read it. Um, and so he sort of worked on that idea that it, I think he called it water cooler talk. You know, mm. if you, if you can't join, it's the same with a TV program, you know, if you haven't watched it and people are talking about it at work or at school or whatever, you'll, you'll try it out. So they would target a book. I think it was a book a month. I can't remember, but it was, um, a book that they would ask as many people to read as could. And then they'd have like, um, ads on the sides of buses with like provocative questions like, oh, what's this person going to do now? You know, oh, it, right, it was yeah. amazing the yeah. number of people that took that up and just really saw it as kind of like a statewide book club almost, you know, it was fantastic. We all just want to be in a book club. That's it. It turns out. Um, I want to do a lightning round before I let you go, if okay. that's okay. Yes. Because you have, I mean, you just mentioned Dana Joya. Yeah. Um, what are if if I name some people that you've interviewed? Yeah. I'd love to hear just like the first thing you think of about okay. meeting that them or talking to them. That would be kind of weird, I would imagine, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily like he's short, but you know, yeah, like, <laughs> something they said that sticks with okay. you, maybe. Yeah. So what yeah. what about Dan Joya? What was comes back to you? Uh, that he was very charming and able to talk about. Um, poetry for the public you know that he was all about um dismantling any kind of elitism about poetry and getting everybody to love it and be part of it and he said i remember he saying him saying to me that his last name joy i meant joy and that you know a lot of what he was about was the joy of poetry mm-hmm. harold bloom okay well harold bloom called me pookie cat when i interviewed him but in a really nice way <laughs> in a very like grandfatherly way he said you remind me of my granddaughter help me put my little parker back on and you know um you went to his house yeah i did go to his house okay uh so and his wife was there and i he asked me if i wanted some jam on toast i think it was all pretty cute actually um but the thing i remember about him is this incredible internal library he could just quote for days i mean he talked about times that he'd been in hospital and one of the things that he did um to pass the time was to um recite 
pretty much every Shakespearean text. Holy shit. Yeah, aloud. Or just go over it in his head. Like, everything that you asked him, he would have a quote for. It was, a, it was incredible. He was an incredible person. And, you know, in many ways, his Western canon is flawed, but the idea of the thinking behind that and the putting it out there, and, and he loved being provocative. He loved saying, all right, tell me about it. You know, dismantle it. Work, <laughs> you know, have, have some conversation about it. So, yeah. Right. Noam Chomsky. So I know you were going to say Noam Chomsky and I'm trying to get hot dogs out of my head because I was told that he really enjoyed hot dogs. Um, for me, he likes really plain kind of basic meals. Um, he was fascinating, but he was in some ways tricky to interview because he would often um, say the same thing in a lot of interviews and I really wanted to get something different out of him. Right. So it's I had to tough kind of push when people back. have those scripts. Yeah, and yeah. they just fall into them. So that it's like mm. an essay question on an exam. Yeah. You know, you're told if they ask you this, 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 you can answer it with this. And he sort of did that. But um when he worked out I would sort of push a little bit more. It was really good. Mm. Um and I remember him, you know, talking about the fact that um I asked him about whether he could say whatever he liked, given that he was at MIT and how much kind of censorship was there or do how do universities deal with kind of outspoken, you know, people who may not um, have the political view that, that they would want you to have. And he said, no, it's, it's utter freedom. And he said, you know, it's, it's important that it is. I mean, he was all about freedom of speech. Um, I mean, incredible, incredible kind of man who was able to, engage with just what was in the daily news i think i got there quite early and he'd already got you know an article written about something in the paper you know it was he was he's just incredible need to know what was going on and how i mean he's another person who believes that um you know you, you can change the world if you're if you can be outspoken and you can lobby for what you want you know in a variety of different ways you, know, you can change the world Last one, Camille Parlia. Oh, Camille Parlia is fantastic. I know she's also... I quite like interviewing divisive figures, I suppose. <laughs> um, she drank beer and sang Suicide Blonde when it came on at the bar we were at. I was yes. so nervous. I'd had like three shots of tequila before she even got there. Because, I mean, she's so... She's known for kind of um, pushing back on interviewers. Really? And that okay. Kind of thing. Yeah. I think I was with her for two and a half hours. It was crazy. And she talks so fast and no, non-stop. And mm. transcribing the interview was like... <laughs> it's a nightmare, oh, to be yeah. honest. But she was fascinating. She's She is fearless. I mean, she said the only reason Naomi Wolf was famous was because of her hair. I mean, she says all kinds of provocative things I think are going to get her into so much trouble. And she's like, that's what I think. Wow. So, yeah. Do you have a favourite that I haven't mentioned? Um, no, I think in many ways probably Camille Palio was my favourite just because I think my mouth was open for most of it thinking I, she's never going to let me publish this. And then that's, she did. She was like, publish whatever you want. I don't care. That's that horrible feeling, isn't it? Where it's like, oh God, this is so good. Please don't take this back. Please don't I take know, this back. I know. <laughs> and that's the thing. You've got to have all that kind of stuff signed off. And you're yeah. worried. I mean, Stephen, I interviewed Stephen Greenblatt and he was, um, and he was lovely um and you know he his love of Shakespeare was kind of really interesting to me from the fact that I taught it and so so mm. this so each one of them I remember really fondly but yeah it's funny the things that stick in your head especially after all this time I can't believe I still think of Noam Chomsky and